Hi, and welcome to MC Podcast, episode 39. Appreciate you guys out there joining us today. Today in studio, I have our director of plant breeding. I don't know if you're the director of plant breeding, but you are the you are the whole department of plant breeding. Yes, for sure. Um, uh, Cullen Johnson with us this morning. Good yes, morning. Yes, glad to be here. Good. Hey, uh, so first of all, just kind of catch us up on what's going on in Cullen world at the moment. Yeah, uh, this year I'm setting up uh, yield trials across the United States, uh, going everywhere from Nebraska to, to Pennsylvania. And so uh, right now I'm getting all those trials uh, counted up, shelled up, and uh, treated up and getting in packets. Uh, but also kind of my main priority every morning right now is, is the greenhouse. And uh, uh, if you follow our Instagram or if you've seen anything uh, on YouTube lately, uh, we've been showing a lot about the greenhouse, uh, a lot of pollinations. I think I'm about 80% done now. Okay. Uh, 80% we'll, pollinated. 80% of the greenhouse is finished. I think uh, some of that later stuff is is just now finishing up, so okay. uh, should be going on the downhill pretty soon. Um, Puerto Rico seeds coming back in, yeah. uh, so that should be shipped uh, probably from. Uh, I think it shipped yesterday. Good. So it'll be coming in next week. Uh, get all that stuff shelled up and and ready for uh, the nursery next year. So yeah. So the the stuff I just thought about this the stuff that's in the greenhouse right now is it going to be ready to go in the field this summer yeah it's going to okay. be a quick turnaround actually uh it's once it the last pollination when it's done it's 40 days after that before we harvest uh so that'll be beginning of april by the time Ooh, i get that that'll be out. close yep and i'll have a month to turn and burn with that seed yep. but uh luckily it's able to we'll be able to get that done uh I'll, I'll definitely be putting priority on certain things yeah uh and so if i don't get to some things it's no big deal we'll send it to to winter right uh or send it to maybe eldred so we have a little bit uh, more northern locations we don't have to plant it okay. uh, as that early makes sense. but yeah it's kind of a, a quick turnaround this year is going to be probably busier than last uh, just because i've taken on a, a few more responsibilities with the greenhouse yeah. and more puerto rico seed coming back and stuff like that but yeah it's definitely keeping me busy good Good. In school, keeping you busy? Yep, school's definitely keeping me busy. Uh, uh, this year, to have, having two classes, or this semester taking two classes, uh, I did take an online one, though, so that I didn't have to drive all okay. the way to Carbondale yeah. every yeah. day. Uh, so uh, made things a little easier, but there and again, added more on the work, work front. So Definitely, definitely. Well, cool. I'm glad things are going well. Yeah. Uh, how's how's uh, how's the family in Indiana? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, it, you can kind of say they're in Indiana Kinda, kinda, kinda. Right. Uh, yeah, my mom spent a lot of time in Michigan. Taking, yeah, I spent a lot of time in Michigan. Uh, uh, my niece has a, a congenital heart defect, and so they're up there uh, uh, taking care of her before her next heart surgery. And uh, and my dad's on the road working most sure. of the time this time of year, and so it really uh, nobody's really back at the house in Indiana. Everybody's in some other state, but. Uh, yeah, everybody's doing good thus far. And Savannah doing better. Yeah, Savannah is doing better. Savannah's my niece, by the way. Right. Uh, and uh, she's she's uh, got a tooth out, uh, and she's yeah she's wow. uh, she's been really interactive. <sighs> she's got everything kind of going on. Awesome. The only thing she's got to get into is this next heart surgery in March. Yeah. So uh, definitely prayers for that. But yeah, she's she's just another little kid, just awesome. being uh, being a kid. So. Nice. Good deal. Good deal. So, Colin, we kind of brought you in today. We wanted to talk about kind of the history of corn breeding and 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 the history of corn. Yeah. And and you know, kind of where where corn came from and how we got to where we are. 
Um, and then, and then where you think we're going in the future. Yeah. And, and so, so I, I just kind of wanted to kind of interact with a, a good conversation about that. Cause I think a lot of people, you know, at least for me, I, I always think about corn, the, the, my first, um, you know, kind of my first memory or, or, or the first historical point where I think about corn is with pilgrims, right? Yeah. So, and, and I know that corn didn't come from the Indians in uh, at Plymouth Rock, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and so that's kind of always my 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 first, uh, you know, my my first thinking about back in history where I hear about it, and so and and I don't know if you were going to talk about this or not, but I, one of the interesting things that I learned in, in when I was in seminary was uh, when looking at biblical history, the King James Version actually talks about corn, but it wasn't corn because corn corn's not, not from the Middle East, right? Yeah. And so it would have been more like wheat or barley or something along yes. those lines, e- even though it would, even though the King James Version would, would say, corn. would say corn. Yeah. So uh, actually I did not know that, but that does make sense. Yeah. Uh, there's, and I'll kind of go into a little of this, uh, Vavlov, he was a Russian professor in, uh, in, obviously in Russia at the time, and he was discovering where, or figuring out where origin of species happen, and, and that's one way we can kind of look and say, yeah, we, we, you know, that probably wasn't corn, that was probably something that was close, something that had some similar likeness to it. Um, you know, uh, first thing that maybe would come to mind, uh, I think sorghum that came out of Africa, correct? I can't remember, it's been a while since I've looked at that, yeah. but, you know, there's some similar-ish species around, obviously, right. and, and um, so, yeah, you can get kind of confused on terminologies if you don't know the history of said, uh, said, said exactly. species. So where, so where did, where did corn come from? Yeah. So, uh, and let's kind of back this up and we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll even go further is that, uh, corn that we know today is called Zaya maize. Okay. Uh, and that's what currently is being grown. Corn, when it was being developed, was not actually corn. It was teosinte. Okay. Uh, and then uh, back... Oh, so what were the differences? Been, what, uh, what's the difference between ZMAs and teosinte? So teosinte is a more grassy variety. Okay. Um, its ears are one inch in length, and it only had about 10 to 12 kernels maybe on it. Okay. Um, and sometimes those those kernels would come on the ear. So actually, uh, are on the, on the tassel. Okay. Um, so... Just like, say, like a soybean is, is a perfect flower. Back then, it would have been a perfect flower, too, where both the stamen and the um, the pistil were all on one part of the plant. Both the male and female male, parts. Male and, okay. male and female yeah. parts, no, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right. I'm just making sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, making sure I'm understanding. That's, uh, that's, that's one of those uh, neat things is that it wasn't a, a separated... Uh, spe- or separated on top and bottom, okay. or top on 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 the stalk itself. And that was the teosinte. And where and where where was that? Where that was geographically? A, yeah, so that was in the northern high or the southern highlands of Mexico, okay. uh, specifically the Te- uh, Tehuacan, Huken, sorry, Tehuacan Valley. Okay. Um, and that was the origin. Uh, when we go back and look at how corn developed, that's the origin of that species okay. is out of there. Uh, now the Olmecs and the Mayans decided, were able to cultivate that further. And one of the neat things that happened is there was multiple domestication events that happened. So it actually crossed with a few other grassy corn-ish varieties okay. around. So instead of just being a Teosinte-derived plant, it crossed up with uh, a Tripsicum. There's another Zaya species, Di- 
dihedro something. Uh, it's been a while since yeah. I've, I remembered that. But uh, it was had a few domestication events that allowed for uh, the movement of the, the male and female parts on different parts of the plant, uh, allowed for uh, the seed to stay on ear for a little longer. So when we, when we think about domest- domestication of, of things, right, whether it be corn plants or, uh, you know, some other kind of grain variety or even animals – I typically think of that being on purpose, that we domesticated that on purpose. So were these were these when when we took the the teosinte and we and we we you know domesticated it with the and kind of crossed it, I guess was what we would say. Was it on purpose or was it accidental? Do, or do we even know? So uh, I say divine providence because obviously we're here as a seed corn company. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, that was a completely random thing that happened. It's like having a weed in your field that could cross pollinate with okay, it. Okay. Okay. That's basically what yeah. happened. Is they they were planting this this teosinte variety out, and there just happened to be a trypsicum plant growing nearby that crossed with it, and they said, "Oh wow, this ear's better than all these other ears that I see okay. in in the field." So let's keep that one and let's move that one forward and, and then grind up for cornmeal all the other corn. Right. Um, so that's one of the kind of neat things that you can uh, see happening is all this randomness that, that was happening in those areas. And that allowed, obviously, for uh, uh, these – there's a certain domestication uh kind of guidelines that farmers kind of follow right. where the seed uh, stays on ear longer uh, so that it doesn't just fluff off. Because no, normal plants, when they produce their seed, the, the seed falls off and then waits until uh, a perfect time to germinate. Right. Uh, so that's one thing that uh, farmers, you can call them farmers yeah. back in the day, were, were selecting for is that the ear, the Kernels were staying on the ear long, and and so this was how many how many thousand years ago? Uh, let's see, that would have been probably a bit, it's it's obviously debated because of the scientific community. I would put it in a, at least uh, getting back into one to two, maybe even uh, four thousand uh, okay. years ago. Okay, so um, yeah, four four. 4,000, you know, 5,000 we'll years say ago. say 4,000 so, to 5,000 years okay. ago. Obviously, there's yeah. some debate there with science. Yeah, community. yeah. We're, we're going to shoot a ballpark somewhere yeah. between three and 5,000 years, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, but uh, yeah. that's one of those neat things that uh, uh, just you never would have seen. They wouldn't have never thought that that what that was happening, that they were getting cross pollination. They just knew that they had a better ear. Okay. Uh, another thing is that. Um, seed storage uh, so the seed would stay around longer uh, and obviously they were looking for their more nutritious content because they were they were having to get energy from this plant somehow right. so right. if they produced more energy yeah I'm going to keep that one going we're going to plant that one because I don't have to plant as much of teosente to get what I need to make my okay. cornmeal okay uh, so yeah that's that's a little bit about how corn uh, started. Uh, now, movement obviously came up and down through uh, both North and South America. Um, that was because of trade routes, um, just people moving around. Yeah. Uh, and because corn is so adaptive, it was very easily uh, planted in, in new areas. Uh, back, you know, thousands of years ago, we had a cold spell in the United States, and it was after that cold spell, you know, the, the ice age per se, that uh, corn started moving up because yeah. corn was able to be domesticated uh, in those areas. It wasn't as cold as, say, in like an Arctic en- environment, but uh, but yeah, that's how how corn uh, slowly moved up. Now we kind of can 
pull into a little more modern history now, uh, you know, Native Americans and those people through uh, the indigenous people throughout Central and South America, they were uh, developing uh, different varieties of corn, flints, uh, popcorns, sweet corns, you know, the whole gambit all along because they were finding random things happening out in the cornfield that they would keep moving along. Uh, And it was about, uh, was it 1492, right, when Columbus yes. sailed the ocean blue? And that's when the first uh, uh, Western or Easterner, Eastern Euro- or European, yeah. had seen the corn variety, and they actually brought back uh, corn and um, cassava and potatoes. and uh, Sorry, not cassava. Cassava is out of Africa. It would have been potatoes uh, and, and maybe even peanuts or anything like that. And they brought that back to Europe. So now we've got all this domestication of new varieties that Indians and Native Americans are doing, and then now you have Europeans now developing varieties. And that's where uh, the flint, European flints kind of uh, started being developed, where uh, a lot of that harder germplasm, with it being a little bit harder, those those kernels, allowed it for being uh, more adaptive to colder environments. Okay. Um, And so now we've got kind of spread across the world and so we're domesticating domesticating investigating and we get about to the 19 or the 1800s okay and farmers kind of picked out uh and we can kind of talk in american history here yeah. farmers had picked out certain varieties that worked well okay uh so that includes like lancaster reed yellow dent midland um austerlands uh austerland 420s stuff like that um and so farmers would request seed from this this person. So, for example, Lancaster shirt crop was grown in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Okay. Reed yellow dent came out of Iowa. Uh, Austerland for uh, Austerland varieties came out of uh, in the in northern Indiana region. Midlands came out of more of the the north uh, east or northwest uh, midwestern areas. So. Uh, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Uh, we got like things like Golden Glow coming out of uh, Wisconsin, and, and um, these were all these were all basically open pollinated open varieties. pollinated varieties. And so there's a lot of genetic variation going on within this open pollinated variety, and that's why farmers would only keep the best ears, and then you know doing the same thing like we've done for thousands of years, and in, in, in make up your feed or whatever with the, 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 the worst ears of that group. So that was kind of bringing your genetic variation more towards a peak, but you still have this open pollinated variety where a lot of recombination is happening. Okay. Uh, so that's why... Re- recombination. Explain what recombination yeah, is. Yeah, so recombination is where uh, in genetics where if you cross A by B, there's some of the, the DNA that, that goes into those cells that from, from each plant. Okay. And... Whenever you start looking at those plants after the uh, F, the F two generation, uh, they start being really random. Okay. Uh, so there's like some that are tall, some that are short. short, some that have big ears, some that are small ears. So you know, farmers were typically looking for those bigger ears. We had contests back in the day saying who can make the the biggest plant, who could have the the largest ears, who could have the best yield for those acres. And those acres were only about twenty bushels an acre. Yeah. And that happened all the way up yeah. until the early 1920s. That was only a hundred years ago, right? That we were at twenty bushels an acre. Wow! And just yeah, you know, I'll kind of go into this how we kind of developed from there. But only twenty bushels an acre, and a, a farmer would go and ask, you know, the Austerlins, "Hey, could I have a hundred kernels of this? I'm going to go plant out in my bean field, and I'll make a bunch of seed of that, and then I'll I'll make my own Austerlin variety." And that's what happens. Yeah. There's a lot of strains of each of those, uh, you know, Lancasters, yeah, sure crops, stuff like that. 
because farmers are are making their own selections. They're make, they're adapting that corn to their own environments, uh, and and that's what's kind of neat. Uh, you know, I kind of have some numbers here. Uh, you know, like the reed yellow dent. Forty-seven yeah. percent of modern germplasm is reed yellow dent. Thirteen percent of land of modern germplasm is landcasters. You know, wow. uh, let's see. We got leaming in here at five percent. Minnesota thirteen at thirteen percent. Uh, we got some things out of uh, South America, like Mesa Margo, 2% of the, the modern germplasm being used. So all of these varieties are out there that, that we have the ability to pull out of as farmers back in the day. Uh, and it wasn't until the early 19, or late 1920s, early 1930s that we started uh, selfing those varieties. Basically, they just took doing the same thing I do out in the field, take a brown paper sack and cover over the silks. When we started figuring out that that's kind of how pollen yeah, works how pollen and, worked, and yeah. how the silks work, you know, that's when we started pouring pollen on the silks. We said, oh, yeah, that's how that's how we get, uh, you know, every one of those silks is, is going to be a kernel on that ear. So let's okay. let's cover that over and let's only make sure that this this, this pollen from this plant gets on here. And everybody, uh, I think it was George Scholl, he, everybody was giving him all types of guff about it because they were saying, oh, you're just lowering the yield, lowering the yield, lowering the yield. Yes, he was, but he was creating an inbred variety. Okay. Uh, so he, you know, for example, uh, uh, you're you're selfing that out and you're you're creating that plant to be more like itself instead of an open pollinated variety yeah. uh, where you can have a bunch of tall plants and short plants and stuff. He was looking only for a specific uh, phenotype of that plant, how it looked, different characteristics okay. that he thought was important, and so he had only. Uh, move those forward, and then he started creating what was called a double cross, which is actually a four-way cross. Yeah, you cross two inbreds over here together. You cross two inbreds uh, over here together. And you know, then there's you, four of different ones. And then, and then you, then cross, you cross those, those two, two seeds okay. together, and that's where we started our double cross. So, so you basically cross A and B, and mm-hmm. you get and you get seed A B. A B. Okay. Yes. And then you cross C and D, and you get seed C D. C, D. Yes. And then you cross. A, B, by C, D. Okay. And then you get A, B, C, D. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, and that's how uh, kind of we got into the, um, oh, there was an old US 13, Dixie, uh, Dixie 18, stuff like that back in the day where farmers were planting these. They were, they were kind of hybrid, but they really weren't. They didn't have a lot. Of, the inbreds themselves weren't very strong, and that's okay. why they needed to do four ways is because it, it bumped, bumped the it yield bumped about the yield. double. Okay. Uh, so now we're about 40 to 50 bushels an acre. And when and, was that? And that was around the 1930s. Okay. 1930s okay. all the way up until the 1960s. Really? Yeah. Uh, we were still planting some of those you know, late uh, 1950s, early 1960s. We were still running with like US 13, Dixie 18, some of those things. Uh, so moved on from there and we figured out, well, now let's self out some of these, you know, double cross sides. So AB, they started selfing that out and they found a better variety out of that, you know, that variety, that, that subset of, you know, AB. Yeah. I said, okay, that's really nice. Let's cross that with something that's selfed out of CD. And this is where we start having our single cross. Okay. You know, a by B. A, yeah. Uh, and that's where, you know, we kind of have been since, but we've had some unique things that kind of happened along the way. But, uh, yeah, that started in the 1960s, and that got us all the way up into the 1990s. So we went 30 years of doing this this single single cross. But there and again, we're making new developments out of— And we were basically just focusing on yield. Yes. Main thing was the focus on yield, trying to get those yield numbers up. We were trying to make sure that uh, things like maize uh, dwarf—or, yeah, dwarf uh, maize, maize mosaic virus— 
Okay, yeah. I think that well, was it. Uh, one of the bad ones. This is your story. Day. You yeah, can make yeah, it up yeah, anything, yeah. You it, you, yeah. anything you want. You can make up anything you want. Anything you want. It's in this big book right here. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, uh, um, there was a bunch of diseases that, uh, you know, we're not really battling now. Right. Um, but, you know, th- there was kind of some of that back in the day. Uh, we're also obviously looking for things that would stay in longer in the field. Okay. Um, and, and that's kind of the, the breeding scheme is let's bump the yield. Let's get these farmers productive. Uh, and then we move into the early 1990s where biotechnology started okay. uh, coming coming along. So obviously Roundup, uh, we've moved now into BT traits, uh, you know, Liberty Link, uh, you got rootworms, anything of those traits moved us along. Uh, and that got us, uh, and I should make note though, before I move on, yeah. is that uh, those single crosses got us up from uh, from 40 to 50 bushels an acre to 120 to 100 or 100, yeah 120 to 150 bushels an acre. Okay. So we almost what tripled that yeah. uh, with doing a single cross and making developments for those specific ca- characteristics. So now with biotechnology that now puts another uh, giant bump on the corn yields. Now we're going 150 and greater. Uh, and, and, and it's just almost a peak. There's a graph, a nice graph that kind of shows how corn developed from the late 1880s, yeah. uh, where it's flatlined with, you know, open pollinated varieties. Then we have our double cross, which puts it at a, a semi good increase. And then single crosses really put another big increase. And then biotechnology put a massive incline on those yields. And so, you know, we're, we're looking at this and we're saying, oh, how far can we go with biotechnology? How how far can we push this? And, and another thing to make note with, it's not just the the genetics themselves uh, that are making a play in this. I, I would put genetics probably about 50% uh, of, of the um, information behind that data. Okay. That pushes the data uh, pushes the yield along. Uh, there's also um, agronomic practices, management practices that farmers are are doing better. We're getting better equipment. You know, we're now we're starting to look at well, what is this square inch different than this right. square inch? We're we're doing uh, nutrients for just specifically that area. You know, we're being better management. Uh, we're taking better management practices of our of our land. Right, right, right. And that's where another portion of that is uh, coming out of. And that's where a good push of the the, the industries right now are, are pushing into those phenotyping and management practices like that is because um, that they, they, they think that there's not a uh, another genetic bump we can hit out of biotechnology. We're going to have to find something we're gonna else. We're going to have to find it through through management. Through management and through, uh, you know, looking at those specific, you know, this block of this field is he needs more nitrogen or something like that. We're going to have to, to, to be better managers or fields. So. Okay. So one of the things that I think that, um, you know, so we were, you were talking about, you know, farmers recognizing this, this physical characteristic or this phenotype, this physical mm-hmm. characteristic of this plant, uh, of this inbred and this physical characteristic of this. And we'll cross that because we want, you know, we want, we want those two in the, in the same plant. How is how is molecular marking or genetic marking? How how is that changing? How is that changing uh, plant breeding? So, and, and back in the day, we were just looking at random variation okay. that was happening, random plants okay. that would just show up, and that's what we would select. We'd say, okay, this one's different, this one's weird. That's kind of what I do. I, yeah, you know, I, it, I go out there and, and there, say this and there, one's different. This and there's still weird. a lot of value in and that. And there's value in that. You see a little bit of a value as you yep. develop those uh, and figure out where they actually work in a in yep. a market. Um, with biotechnology now, we're able to 
say, okay, yeah, I've had this thing, you know, let's take, for example, BM3, okay, just because it's a really easy visual thing yeah. we can look at. Say, okay, BM3, we've got a lower lignin, okay? And it's got some on the on the the DNA strand. There, you know, it's a it's a lineup basically yeah. of this this gene, this gene, this gene. Just so when genes are really close with each other, they tend to uh, follow along with each other. So okay. there might be some genes along both sides of BM three. They're coming along. They're giving us worse agronomics. Right. Okay, or uh, they're giving us a difference in some other biochemical pathway within the plant. So now with uh, with molecular techniques, we can say, okay, let's make a BM3 plant, but not have any of that other stuff that, around that it. negative stuff the around negative it. negative stuff around it that can come along with it. You know, BM3, just being an example, one of the big ones is opaque. You know, we, we obviously are having agronomic practices, yeah. uh, agronomic problems with opaques. Let's go ahead and <clears throat> create an O2 that we moved through a molecular technique where we only create an O2 through that one change at that okay. that location. So that's one of the kind of neat things that yeah. um, molecular techniques can now do is that we can pinpoint certain things we want and turn those yeah. on or turn those off. Right, turn them on. Because if we just were to do that with the phenotype thing, like you said, mm-hmm. we when we cross those two plants together, we we carry, not only do we carry that good thing that we want, but we can carry yes. those those two, maybe those two bad things yeah. along with it. And when you when you get in the hybrid, maybe it's kind of detrimental yeah. for things. Yeah, yeah. And that's why, uh, like, when we screen hybrids, we see, you know, maybe this one isn't good. Maybe there was something genetically that was carrying along from this other side genetics that we didn't okay. think was going to happen that you know now we can we can kind of slough off those bad things and keep only the good things so where do you where do you see plant breeding going in the future Cullen? um you know obviously uh, uh coming from that grain background i i originally thought let's just drive the yields yeah and, and that's that was what my my practice was being here now i really do think the market's going when the market makes a shift and i say when yeah. not if the when the market makes the shift to being more energy driven being more efficient yeah. i'm seeing uh, a lot of backpedaling onto older varieties to restart and start selecting out of uh selecting out um better uh quality material okay um obviously we're in we're in a point where we have driven yield 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 so much in our you know, our breeding techniques uh-huh. that now we're forgetting about all of these other nutrition and now our genetics that are out there are only for yield. Only for yield and don't have don't have all of the all of the nutritional qualities yes. that we're gonna need. You know, I, I, I see this even not only with, with corn, but um and, and maybe I'm maybe it's just the hippie part of me, right? You know, because believe it or not, there is a little bit of hippie yeah. part of me. Um, that, um, you know, I, I see this, uh, especially like in wheat, I see a lot of people going back to some ancient wheat, uh, that, um, in fact, I had, there was a call from a guy in, uh, in central Illinois just the other day. And he and I were kind of talking about this and he was really talking about the idea of, 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 of making more, more nutritious, you know, varieties and, and, and going back to some of the more nutritious varieties, because I I do think we're going to get to the point where, where we're going to have to have more energy, more nutrients per acre than, than we are going to have to have just pounds of material. We still have to have pounds of material, right? You know, I mean, we still have, we still have to have pounds of material, but but within that pounds of material, we need to we need to do something to increase the the nutrient value yes. of those things. Yes, and then and that's also there and again where 
the molecular techniques do take an advantage. We do yeah. have this harder germplasm out there, right? But now let's see how we can take that harder germplasm and use our molecular techniques to maybe not back up totally into right. older germplasm. Uh, you know, I use that example because it's a lot easier to do. You can start basically start over right. without losing a whole lot. Uh, and you're not looking at going back to something from the open pollinated varieties. You're looking no. to go back to things that were happening in the 1960s where, you know, we did have a higher nutritional quality in some of those those plants. Let's now push that into, you know, a more modern variety where we can make that de one development and we're already back at that yield level. But now with that... Uh, nutritional quality. But with the nutritional quality added into, added into it. it. Yep. Absolutely. And so now let's move the molecular techniques into that too. Let's say, okay, I know that this A, B, and G, C gene obviously uh, all have um, parts to play in a harder germplasm that's maybe not as more nutritious. Let's alter those and let's also bump up this other gene over here that's got a maybe a better lysine content or better tryptophan content yeah. or something like that. And let's move into let's move those genetics that way now without totally going back. Uh, and that's one thing that I'm uh, currently learning a little bit more about it at college is uh, how to do that uh, efficiently. And I think that's where uh, we'll make it, make a good play uh, good. In, in the future. Good deal. Good. Colin, thanks for joining me today. Man, it's been interesting. I hope everybody out there listening has learned something. Uh, if you have any questions about uh, where corn genetics are going in the future, don't call me. And um, <laughs> if you have any questions about what, what Cullen said, don't call me. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Um, and so, Cullen, I, I really I really appreciate you. I appreciate your knowledge. I really appreciate your, the way that you can explain this and, and help people understand it. So, guys, thanks for listening out there. Um, and uh, as always, remember that you can find us on uh, Facebook, YouTube, and always at seedcorn.com. Thanks for listening.